Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Pizzell. I am Ethan Knight. Ethan, we're back with number 46 on the list. We're really getting up there. <gasps> this is 1934's It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night. Starring Clark Gable. Clark Gable. And what's the leading actress's name in this? Her I haven't heard name, her name before this. Claudette Colbert or Colbert. I think yeah, it's probably Colbert. Colbert is uh, is Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the pronunciation. I, this may surprise you, have not seen a Clark Gable film. I have not either, actually. I know he's Rhett in Gone with the Wind. Yes, which we will also uh, do on this podcast. Oh, but so much later. I think we have like a year before we get that high up in the list. Yeah, it's a ways away. But in any case... Ethan, why don't we just start off with a plot synopsis, and we'll just sink our teeth into this film. Let's do it. It Happened One Night is the story of Ellie Andrews, the rich and spoiled daughter of Alexander Andrews, a wealthy Wall Street banker. Ellie has married gold digger King Wesley against the wishes of her father. Despite her father's attempts to force her to annul her marriage, Ellie remains steadfast to her new husband and leaps from the side of her father's boat in an attempt to escape to her husband, in New York. She purchases a Greyhound bus ticket and begins to make her way north from Florida. On the bus, she meets Peter Warren, a recently unemployed newspaper man, and he gives her two options. She must either agree to let him have an exclusive story on her and her journey, or he will report her whereabouts to her father. Ellie, of course, chooses the story, and the two make their way up to New York. Throughout their trip, they run into many snags and have several small adventures and find themselves hitchhiking Uh, on their way to New York. After their driver attempts to run off with Peter's suitcase, Peter tracks him down and steals his car. Ellie, of course, begins to fall in love with Peter and eventually confesses her love to him. He responds with scorn until she's asleep and heads to New York secretly to write up his story, which ends with them in love together. A romantic gesture, or at least it's supposed to be. While he's away, Ellie is kicked out of her motel and assumes that Peter has abandoned her. She calls her father, who's agreed to acquiesce to her marriage, and he picks her up just before Peter can return to her. She plans a large, extravagant wedding with King, and Peter wallows in despair. Peter sends a message to her father asking for about $40 for his trip expenses, but does not attempt to collect the $10,000 reward, and after being pressed by Alexander, admits his love for Ellie. Peter's father whispers to her as she walks down the aisle that Peter loves her and that her father's prepared a car for her to escape the wedding. She does and heads to Peter, who she immediately marries the moment the annulment to King goes through and the two quote-unquote topple the walls of Jericho or finally remove the makeshift wall between them in their motel room that offered physical privacy. The film ends happily as the two turn off their motel lights and consummate their relationship. Ethan, I like this movie. I loved it. It was so much fun. It is so funny for a film that came out in 1934. Yes. In fact, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is one of the last pre-code comedies that came out. It is. And we've, you know, in some of these older films that we've watched on the list, they've been pretty hit or miss. Like, we either really like them or we really just don't care for them. But this one, I think... uh, despite some of the problems with it it's got some problematic stuff some certainly some problematic gender stuff uh regardless it's a lot of fun and the jokes are funny it's a funny movie 
it's not nearly as madcap as a say Marx Brothers film. No. But it's more real and yes. the humor isn't as dissociated from the plot and the characters. Or I'll put it this way, it has less of a feeling of being a sort of a variety show because the Marx Brothers films definitely feel uh, a little bit like a variety show, thinly strung together with a plot. Um, and even some of the Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn films that we've watched um, are like pretty screwball in like the full tilt screwball kind of way. Whereas this uh, is, like you said, a little more grounded, which I think helps it. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that when I started my viewing of this, I wasn't very sure. Ellie's dad seems like a major asshole, which by the end, I thought, hey, this guy's actually pretty cool. You know, he's the one that's actually taking action to make sure these two people who love each other get together. He does redeem himself, yes. But one of the first things Ellie does is flip a table, which is okay. Oh, fantastic. You've got me. One of the first things that Peter does is drunkenly call his boss and basically 1934 version of curse him out for being fired which i'm not really endeared to peter at that point but it's interesting because i gain more respect for peter's character as we move on and a little bit less for ellie's as we move on there's kind of an oscillation there but then by the end i'm on board with both of these characters absolutely Mm -hmm. so i think this is actually a great place for us to turn to our pivotal scene which is really my pivotal scene because this one i said okay movie I'm into what you're doing and I'm going to see you through and I'm interested. Mm -hmm. So this scene is maybe one we don't expect, but this is where Peter Warren tells Ellie that she's just the kind of person that he can't get along with because she doesn't know humility Mm, never occurs to her that you just can't buy things. And that sounds very trite or tropic, but I think the way it's presented is actually really good. It's a moment of really serious character and plot development after some of the more madcap stuff on the bus with the bus driver and just Mm -hmm. his antics that he's getting up to which again doesn't depart wildly into the vignette style sketch comedy marx brothers stuff that we see but is a moment of levity and so i think these two moments paired together actually make for a really nice contrast and so i opted for the one that puts the plot forward so let's go ahead and take a listen to it. You know, I've always been curious to know what kind of a girl would marry a front-page aviator like King Wesley. Take my advice. Grab the next bus back to Miami. That guy's a phony. I didn't ask for your advice. That's right. You didn't. But you're not going to notify my father, are you? What for? You probably could get some money out of him. Yeah, I never thought of that. Listen. If you promise not to do it, I'll pay you. I'll pay you as much as he will. You won't gain anything by giving me away as long as I'm willing to make it worth your while. I've got to get to New York without being stopped. It's terribly important to me. I'd pay you now, only the only thing I had when I jumped off the yacht was a wristwatch, and I had to pawn that to get these clothes. But I'll give you my address, and you can get in touch with me the minute you get to New York. Never mind. You know, I had you pegged right from the jump. It's a spoiled brat of a rich father. The only way you get anything is to buy it, isn't it? You're in a jam, and all you can think of is your money. It never fails, does it? Ever hear of the word humility? No, you wouldn't. I guess it never occurred to you to just say, please, mister, I'm in trouble. Will you help me? No. Let it bring you down off your high horse for a minute. Well, let me tell you something. Maybe it'll take a load off your mind. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not interested in your money or your problem. You, King Wesley, your father, you're all a lot of hooey to me. 
Okay, as I mentioned, this is Peter Warren saying, look, I am diametrically opposed to you, <laughs> and we know where this goes in terms of a romantic comedy plot. Always. Tried and true. Tried and true. But where I think this film differs is that I'm invested in the characters. I care yes. about these characters. Mm-hmm. They feel rounded to me. They feel like people with their own problems and their own aspirations. And I want them to succeed. Yeah, and they do both grow. They are not static characters, nor are they flat characters. No, yeah, they, they, are, they are people we can empathize with. Yes. However, I think this is a good time to turn to the fact that you mentioned there's some problematic gender stuff. So we may should, maybe we should explicate that a little bit more. What do we mean? What's going on here in terms of gender we should be careful of? Well, I think that these characters uh, absolutely engage in um, essentially 1930s gender norms in that Clark Gable uh, does infantilize Ellie in a lot of ways. Um, he certainly treats her uh, like a child. You know, he, he talks down to her quite a bit. Um, you, you know, the power dynamics are, are clearly with the weight of it in the in the man's camp which can be problematic you know ellie's big uh sort of inciting incident is that you know her father keeps her under his thumb and she tries to escape so a lot of it does have to do with her trying to gain some sort of independence and and by the end you know she basically comes around the curtain that that uh he puts up the wall of jericho that he puts between them in the uh hotel room the motel room um, and she professes her love and is like, I can't live without you. And uh, he very stoically, you know, is a, is a man about it. Oh, wow. Oh, go back to bed. Go back to bed. Go back to bed. When, of course, he really does also love her um, and then does, you know, concoct this large romantic gesture. But, you know, there certainly are ways. I mean, her father slaps her in the face. And I mean, there are some things that we just aren't sort of down with in 2018. Uh and it, and it is the sticking point of the plot, right, is that Ellie wants some independence and has none. Yeah, this is something Ellie brings up a little bit later, about midway through the film, when they are at that motor hotel or motel as we know it today. And she says, you know, you dislike me or you hate me because I'm a spoiled brat. But I really don't think that's the case because I've never been allowed to do what I want mm-hmm. because she's always been controlled by a man in this case. And he is very paternalistic, both these men, right? Both Clark Gable's character and her father, even though she is a person that can buy and sell Peter, he still takes the lead in most of these situations. Eventually she starts undermining that or deconstructing that power. And it is at the end when she says, Oh, I can't live without you. And he's very stoic. You're right. But he too collapsed under that. And even though he is bound by 1930s, man code or manly masculinity he still needs her as well and it's in that eruption mm-hmm. at the end which i think is such a beautiful scene between peter and ellie's father that he can admit i am in love with her i do need her and maybe i'm crazy for saying that but this is what i want mm-hmm. there are some other things though i think that are an issue you know the newspaper editor who again is another character we find to be an asshole at first but then kind of becomes a little more sympathetic or we can kind of empathize a little bit more because Mm -hmm. he realizes that peter's actually in love with ellie and even though he's gonna make all these decisions for his business he still reads the story and says here when you sober up come give me a call basically saying i'll give you your job back but i know you have to deal with this heartbreak first which is you know very 
traditionally masculine way of dealing with something like heartbreak. Bottle your emotions, drink them away. Right. I will say there's actually a differentiation between levels of sort of skeezy behavior in this film, right? We've got paternalistic stuff, but then we've got Shapely, Mm -hmm. the character. I wrote down a line because he's talking to Ellie, and this is before Peter steps in and says, well, I'm her husband to kind of take one take ownership of her but also protect her so you know we can have some ambivalence about that situation but shapely says the colder they are the harder they get hotter they get the hotter they get yeah yeah shapely is a is a rapey character which is you know played for comedy but it feels icky in in 2018 they say something Um, along the lines like shapely it's like call him like side piece shapely or something like that mm mm-hmm so he's an adulterer and then still hides behind his wife and kids when Peter isn't pretending to be a mobster that wants to gun down cops for their right. kidnapping job. But but I do think that like this film does uh, gesture towards her. I mean, her thing is to try to get independence and, you know, it may not be through the most uh, progressive way that she does gain it because she does leap from one man to another from her father to her husband uh but he is a sort of husband that has her feelings and uh, goals in mind as well in as much as a man from 1934 can do (laughs) well i think this is where peter warren as completely different from king wesley which is a stupid name it's called wesley it's wesley is what actually prompts her to confess her love to him when they're laying down in the dark on opposite sides of the walls of Jericho. And he talks about love because she's asking about love. And he says, well, of course, who hasn't thought about it? And I want to be with a girl who wants just as much to play in the surf as I do, takes as much pleasure in life as I do. So it is somewhat egalitarian, the paradise he's envisioning for he and his unknown or future wife at the time. But you're yes. right. It's it's working within an established code. And I think that's why I give this film a little bit of a break, because though it is still bound by that time frame, it's doing things to subvert that in a way I think this shows they weren't bought all the way in to the standards. Yeah. And, you know, we do see uh, Clark Gable's character do some... I guess honorable things. That's maybe not the best word. You know, he certainly puts up that the wall uh, between them with the made out of blanket and rope to give her privacy. Um, as much as you know, his intentions begin as sort of sleazy in that, like he's looking for his gain. By the end, you know, his actions are reflecting hopefully what she wants, and he does work um, as a catalyst for her uh, sort of quest that she ends up not ultimately going after in the end as we see um but he does you know help her and and you know help her navigate the world in a way that she wasn't equipped to do um and he he does turn the story around at the end into like a what, what should be a love story right uh and that's part of the reason why he's so forlorn so Oh, I, I think there are problems, but I think that, you know, it feels fairly progressive at the end of the day um, in context. I also don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but I felt like there was some kind 
of attraction between their characters from the very beginning. And even though he professes to be doing this just for the story, I think he's kind of protecting himself from falling in love. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think the film sets us up for that. And again, maybe I am overreading it, but I think that was at least how I experienced it. And I felt, you know, I empathized with him more with that because he's not being a skeezy guy or just a pragmatic or a soulless person in this regard. Right. I also think there are interesting moments where she empowers herself. Remember you, mm-hmm. they're sitting there trying to hitchhike and what happens The famous is, hitchhiking scene, of course. Yeah, the famous hitchhiking scene. And he can't get a car to stop, even though he's thinking about writing this book, which is just this joke that they play out, right? That he knows a bunch about a bunch of stuff. And so if we, you know, if we were ever catalog at all, he could fill a whole book with that. But mm-hmm. nothing works for him. And then she lifts up her skirt to reveal an amount of her leg and of course it stops a car and he's a little sort of nonplussed by this because he's like well if you took all your clothes off we could have had 40 cars and her response isn't modesty she says well if we ever need 40 cars i'll do that right yeah she does uh definitely take control of situations she uses her body in a way that is designed to empower her you know uh, to take control of the situation and to match him, right? Because, of course, his whole conceit is that, you know, she's rich and doesn't know how to, you know, work the world except for with money. And then she's like, hold on, I might not be quite as helpless and, uh, you know, trite and useless as you think. I can get along, too, in the world, um, which I think is is a nice challenge to his sort of paternalistic attitude in places. And it is also worth mentioning, too, that, like, throughout the film, he definitely is not trying to take sexual advantage of her at any point. Uh, We might not be able to say the same about King. I don't know if that's necessarily explicit, but King is is not necessarily looking for uh, the kind of love or relationship that the two main characters do achieve or apparently achieve at the end. Wesley wants a trophy, it seems like. Yeah, it does. It seems like he wants a trophy and he wants money, you know. Uh, Whereas we see Peter very explicitly not want the money. He just wants, you know, the 40 bucks back that he... He just wants 39.60 for costs. Yeah, for the, you know, for him to literally pay for the gas. He sold a bunch of things to get the gas to go to New York and back to surprise her. And, you know, there, he does have that altruistic moment where his father or her father is like, well, don't you want the $10,000? And he's like, no, I don't want that. I just want, I want to get exactly back what I put into it and I'm going to be done with it. So he is, an, at the end of the day, a, an altruistic character for what it's Whereas worth. Whereas Wesley... Accepts $100,000 for an annulment. $100,000. And, you know, let me tell you this. I did, I love my little inflation calculator website thing that I go to. And I did it for the the essentially $40, which translates to about 800 bucks in today's money. So let's just take a quick look and see how much $10,000 is. Uh, let's see, this is 1934. Uh... $10,000 in today's money from 1934 is about $186,000. So that's the reward. But what about Wesley's annulment sum? What is $100,000? That's, oh shit, that's like, that's over a million dollars. That's almost $2 million. He takes wow. $2 million <laughs> to uh, have an annulment. That is wild. 
It's a lot of fucking money. <laughs> sure is. I mean, shit, $100,000 is a lot of money to take to not marry somebody. Like, what's wild? Ethan, we need probably to move on to our three questions. But yes. right before we do, I think I want to linger a little bit longer over the fact that this movie is just pre-code. Because there's a couple of stories here. The first one being, there was a rumor, and I have no way of knowing this was true or if it's substantiated. But when Clark Gable is undressing in front of her, you know, as a joke to basically threaten her back to the her side of the walls of Jericho, he takes off his shirt and has no undershirt. And supposedly that made undershirt sales drop as a result. Yeah, I, I read that as well, that it, it's some sort of, it's not necessarily substantiated, but a, what a what a great little tidbit yeah. of information. And then also, she has two undressing scenes, which actually go a lot farther than I would expect from a movie. Yes, it's kind of racy for, for 34. It's a little racy, and you can definitely see why the films that come out after this don't have it, because they're in code. But they get away with a lot of stuff right before that hits, so... I thought that was interesting to bring these things up because we don't necessarily see them again for a while. Yeah. So let's dive into our three questions. Let's do it. What do we owe to this film? Well, I think one of the m- most clear and most recognizable uh, little pieces that of culture that we owe to this is the hitchhiking scene. That hitchhiking scene has been imitated, uh, been made fun of, where in countless cartoons movies this idea that you you know you put your leg out and that will get a car to stop i mean everybody everybody knows that they've seen it in some you know form of media and it and it's funny i mean that's iconic you know so i think we absolutely have to to address that and i just think that like this is a nice sort of screwball romantic comedy that continues to build that sort of uh, body of tropes that fit into the romantic comedy. I mean, this is yeah. The opposite attracts the fact that they have such chemistry, even though they also repel one another at the same time. Mm-hmm. I also don't know where I've seen this, but I've seen the scene where she's lying on the bed talking to her father, distraught over the fact that Peter, that she thinks Peter doesn't want to be with her, but she's going to go through with this wedding anyway. I've seen that scene somewhere before. It must have been mm. in some other film. I don't know if it's another romantic comedy. Could it possibly have been 500 Days of Summer? I know there's a couple. Oh, you know, it might actually be. F- I, that was vaguely recognizable to me as well. It may be from that. We also should talk about the fact that this won every major Academy Award. Oh, my God. It was the first film to win what they call the Big Five. Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Writing. Is that five things? And director. And best director. Um, yeah, this won a hell of a lot of awards. Also, it's a good part to bring up. This is based on a short story. So another AFI Top 100 that is sourced by Adaptation. something else. Adaptation, yeah. They are very strong. They are well represented on this list. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ethan, one of the major things we owe to this film is Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny! I knew you were going to say it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the creator of bugs bunny was notably a fan of this film and you can see it in the way that uh clark gable chomps on those uh carrots uh his sort of demeanor the idea of calling somebody doc comes from the what's his name skeezy mcskeezball character yeah shapely um 
you know, so, yeah. Also, did you know that Hitler and, I believe, Stalin were big fans of this film? Looks like even horrible dictators are fans of good cinema. <laughs> if only they had taken the messages of this film to heart. Isn't that wild to think how dissociated they are from the message of the film and what they did? Absolutely. It's, it's wild. Well, Ethan, do we care about this film? I, I think so. It's just such a fun film, and you can totally see... Uh, how it is it's just a great example of the of the genre of that romantic comedy genre um it hits all the right notes um it it's just it's it's enjoyable um and and as we've pointed out it's got these sort of long lasting repercussions that's maybe not the right word or echoes or whatever i mean bugs bunny uh you know these like the, the silly hitchhiking scene uh, some of the pre-code sexuality stuff, you know, I think that it does in in its own way. Like I said, I think it's fairly progressive for the 30s. It, it you know, it is a, an empowerment narrative to a point with for this woman. Um, it still is. It, I mean, obviously, it's not perfect, but but it does, you know, deal with her drive for independence. And even though she gets what we would see today as kind of a warped version of independence, um, I think by 30 standards you know she becomes a f- uh, character with some agency uh and explores that so i think so yeah i'm willing to agree so i guess that makes you hitler and me stalin i don't know it just feels like our personalities kind of align us that way uh, absolutely i mean i guess if if anyone's going to be hitler it's me no but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so i am really enamored of this film i laughed out loud several times oh, i yeah. certainly teared up a great many times during this film particularly during that scene between peter and ellie's father i thought that was fantastic he keeps asking do you love her and he says You'd have to be crazy to love her. And he keeps denying the question and evading it. Eventually he says, well, I'm a little crazy, so don't hold it against me. But yes, I love her. Yeah. And I just also think the fact that it is working within very stringent social norms and still yeah. finding ways to subvert those, at least minorly, I think is admirable. And so I'm a big fan of this film, even though I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. I think this one really spoke to me. Yeah, I think it hits the marks. I think it hits the marks. Well, then the final question is, does it hold up? Uh, And I think the answer to that is pretty clearly yes. I think out of a a lot of the films that we've seen that have been uh, considerably older, you know, we're talking like pre-1950s cinema, um, I think that, like I just pointed out, this hits a lot of the right comedic beats. It hits the right marks of romantic comedy. It's the right length. It's not too long. It's not too short. Um you know, I think that there is a little bit of pacing stuff at times that, you know, that sort of that. Oh, I love be- the pacing. I, I just think that like the the beginning takes a minute or two to really get into it in a way that like a, a modern film may not. There are a few moments where there, you know, things feel just a little, just a little too dragged out or something like that, but not enough to impact the whole of the film. I think that this is a film that uh just holds up so well it's funny uh it's sentimental in the in the good way and it has a it just has a good ending you know it's interesting you mentioned pacing because i think this film offers a template for modern romantic comedies yeah you've got 12 minutes before the problem strikes which is pretty typical in modern films and then always and i point this out a lot with romantic comedies much to my wife's chagrin because she thinks i'm ruining it 
at 20 minutes before the film ends, there's a big mix up, mm-hmm. a big danger to the relationship that has to be resolved, one final test. And we get that almost exactly at that timestamp as well. So I think so many films take this film and those like it up for this kind of pacing. And I think it's successful or largely useful for them. I also think, now I know this was remastered again in something like 2011, but the audio is really crisp and clean and the visuals aren't super jumpy. There's a few frames where I can think of that it's clear the camera shot has moved slightly or the film has done something strange, but largely it is easy to watch. It's easy to listen to. It's easy to take part in. And I think I'd like to set this up against something like Sullivan's Travels, which is a very similar film in a lot of ways, except for it's the man that's on the road that finds the woman and finds love or whatever. Right. This reverses the roles slightly, but I think this film is far more successful than that one was. And I think this one holds up far better as a result. And, you know, for its its foibles, which it has a few, um, it, it is a film where the main character, despite some of the billing, if you look at the uh, po- posters and things, I mean, Clark Gable is not the main character, really. Ellie is. It's Ellie's journey. It's her transformation that is the focus of this film which is i mean i think about how many uh films today that that you know are ostensibly vaguely feminist or have female characters that don't you know focus quite so strongly on the the female characters the main character so i think that in, in a lot of different ways it holds up and it's just pleasant to watch it creates a great template or at least it uh, refines a little bit that template for the romantic comedy. Um, and if you took this script uh, and and did it today as a period piece, like as set in the 30s, I think it would almost entirely stand up very well. I will also say that I think I saw some posters with the actress's name first, which I keep forgetting. I'm sorry. Culture has hammered Clark Gable's name into my head, but mm-hmm. not hers for some reason which maybe says something about the interchangeability of female leads. But I think sure. hers, her name was listed first in a couple of these posters. Yeah. Although I think it's also important that this film does not pass the Bechdel test no. at all. But again, you can't have everything in 1934. So I think both of us are mostly positive about this one. Yeah, mostly positive. I, I, I think that it's, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a film worth seeing. Uh, and I know we don't ask this question in our main uh canonical episodes but i mean if, i think if you asked me should people go and see this film i think that yes go and check it out it is totally worth it whatever what is it like three bucks on amazon or something to rent like, yeah go rent it it's worth it shit you could probably buy it for three bucks um and it's it, i mean it's rewatchable that's and that says a lot absolutely so we're mostly positive but i'm all the way sure that we are done with this episode we yes fool around long enough as they say so i think we'll return next week with one of our patreon episodes for the patrons of the arts sure will and then after that we'll come back with another edition of the canon lists we'll also have a rundown mixed in in there (gasps) oh my gosh so look forward to that but until then i've been matt bazell and i am ethan knight and there will be spoilers oh yeah yeah, Ethan, I, I mean, we do this every time. I don't know. We, yeah, there's going to be spoilers, of course. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I don't... I, we do this every week. 
there will be spoilers. Oh, yeah? Well, you sure told me, didn't you? I'm going to go drive this bus now. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. And you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.